you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Not, uh, not going to be a specific Father's Day sermon, uh, as is typically our custom, uh, to not have, that is. Um, every sermon is a Father's Day sermon. Uh, I would encourage you men with that. I would say this too, before I get started, that, you know, on my way here, trying to spend time in reflection and and just faced with my own sin, um, found my heart desiring to come sing and hear the word taught, uh, be reminded of the word even afresh. I don't know if you guys realize this, but um, when I'm preaching that. Lord willing, that most Sundays what happens is um, I gain new insight as we go, uh, and uh, you, I might, you know I could blame the extra twenty thirty minutes on that. But uh, what I mean by gain extra insight, not necessarily extra understanding of the passage, but there's moments in preaching when I go for the first time. That was for me. Like, that thought right there was for me, and that one over there was for me, and oh my gosh, what just came out of my mouth was for me, and, uh, and that happens during the week as I study and prepare, and I'm th- so thankful to, to be able to do that, and to be called to that, and, and enabled even by your guys' tithing to, to do that, and, and, um, but even beyond that, there are moments in preaching where I am being preached to. Uh, that had not previously happened in study. So, my point is, as I think about fatherhood, and as I thought about fatherhood this morning, and reflecting on my own fatherhood, I, in being faced with my sin, I recognized, and what came out of my heart was a longing to um, behold Him. And I pray that the same is true for you. With that, Let's read, Um, we'll read 1 through 7, and we'll concentrate on 6 and 7 this morning. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Remember, tie that back, I've left the text, okay, okay. Tie that back to the end of four, but it certainly has application going forward as well. So don't, like, make sure you don't, like, this is one big letter, okay? So all these thoughts are all tied together, but just keep that in mind. Now we go, verse three. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. He says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, 
which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Let's pray. Father, fathers, we study your scriptures this morning. Father, please awaken our cold hearts or awaken parts of our hearts that have become cold and hardened. Father, let us see your glorious, gracious, kind warnings to us this morning. Let us behold them as something that is good for us that comes from the love of our Father. Uh, For your glory and your kingdom's sake, I pray this. Amen. So let's look at verse 6 and 7 here. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. One of the things that's being implied, one of the major thoughts being implied by Paul at this point in the text, is that it's far too easy for believers to be influenced by the surrounding world. It's far too easy. The result is that what's acceptable in the culture becomes acceptable in the church. And this has been particularly true in our culture concerning sexual morality. I mean, you can see denominations falling by them second, caving into the sexual revolution of our culture. But beyond that, because I think what's happened and for many of us, the churches we grew up in, that, that we thought as long as we don't cuss, we don't drink, we don't smoke, unless it's behind the car where no one can see us. I saw that at a church one time by one of our deacons. Uh, and the church very greatly condemned that idea that Christians don't smoke. Uh, anyways, that's another thought for another day. I, like As long as we don't do these things... These, these very clear, obvious, physical, easy-to-abide-by things that we're somehow staying and, and uh, keeping a barrier up between the influence of the world and inside the church, rather. But I think we underestimate the power of sin and temptation and the way this stuff works. Like, it's not just about not doing certain physical things. It's, it's about our very way of interpreting life. It's, it comes down to how we view sin, how we view 
our motives, how we view serving, how we view everything, and the way we, the lenses, we talked about the presuppositions, like the, the lenses through which we actually filter and understand and sift life. That all of us, guys, all of us, to some extent, still view life in the same way that the culture does. All of us. We're going to spend all of the remaining days of our lives on this earth, by God's grace, having that filter changed, having our view cleaned up and set straight. But I think, we, I think what happens is we underestimate the power of sin and temptation and kind of where it works and how it squeezes into our lives. And Listen, I, I found myself, here's a perfect example. Found myself today, it's Father's Day. I did not want to do any, so I'm having some par- parenting situations going on and had to issue some punishments and a spanking. And I'm thinking to myself, it's Father's Day, daggone it. Like, two things going on here. One, like, don't do this to me. It's Father's Day, right? As if because of this day, I deserve some extra obedience. And second of all, I found myself not wanting to administer punishment because to me, that was not being fatherly, right? Like, in the moment. Like, that's just where my heart was in this tension because I I didn't want to do that because I felt like that's not what's loving, Right? And, and we know that that's not true. And we know that the Father disciplines His children whom He loves. Right, but I fa- So where's that coming from? That's from the, from the culture. That's from our world. And I'm struggling with that this morning. Then on top of that, see I told you I was dealing with my sin in my face as I was on my way to church this morning. Then, then the other part is I found myself wanting to respond perfectly in the situations with my kids. Because I didn't want to spend the rest of my Father's Day thinking about how bad of a father I was this morning. How's that for a motive? That's a sinful motive. That's a, selfish, that's a self-glorifying motive. So now I get to think about that the rest of the day, right? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm going to repent. I have repented already and trust in His forgiveness. But we don't, like, it, it creeps in. And it's all over the place. It's all over our hearts and our eyes and our minds. That's part of why, like, I'm just going to say this is off script. All of this is off script right here, but because it just happened this morning. But, like, that's why I don't understand, like, why, why we don't go to the throne of grace and we go to the Word of God and, and ask Him to sift these things out of us. It's, I think mostly it's because we either think we got it, I don't need it, I'm good to go. That or we're just completely blind to those sins in our lives. And we need God to awaken our eyes to see these things. So the problem is we underestimate the power of sin. We, under, we don't realize how many ways it sinks in and slips into our lives. See, the problem, if, if we're talking about the cultural idea and understanding of life sinking into ours, the problem is that the world has no concern for who God is and the holiness that He requires. See, the world has no clue of this. And so if, if we're going to be influenced by that culture, 
then we're going to be influenced in such a way that we have no concern for who God is and the holiness that He requires. When I looked back on this morning and my sin in my own life, am I most grieved because now I'm going to have an unhappy Father's Day? Or am I most grieved because of defaming God? You see, the world says I should do things to glorify myself. God says you do things to glorify me. So we must understand that fundamentally we are being taught a definition of holiness all of the time. All the time. Everywhere you turn, Everything you listen to, everything you read, every person you talk to, there is being communicated a definition of holiness. Whether it's being stated explicitly or it's being implied in what's being said. We are being taught, we are being informed, we are building in ourselves this view of what God expects, what is acceptable, what is holy, and what He requires. When I'm watching TV, I'm being taught the world's definition of holiness. Certainly, they're not saying, you can do this because this is holy. But when they do something that we know is wrong, and they applaud the people for doing it, and parade it around for making money, they are saying that this is what is holy. That this is good and acceptable. And clearly, irregardless of what God would have to say concerning the situation. Or when I'm reading a book, I'm being taught the author's definition of holiness. Whether that's a secular book or a Christian book, or that's a fiction book or a non-fiction book, it doesn't matter. There are things being celebrated and things being condemned. And when things are celebrated and things are condemned, we are stating that what is good and what is bad. What is holy and what is unholy. What is righteous, what is unrighteous. Let me give you a good example. <clears throat> and and this, is, this, this is going to be fun for a few moments, okay? So hang with me. Many people in our church, like I counted like five, six, and that number like fluctuates, okay? Seven, it depends on the month, really. People in our church engaging in weight loss programs or situations, okay? Just follow me here for a few seconds. Myself included. When I'm reading, so following the vein of thought, I'm always being taught a definition of holiness. So when you're reading the latest diet, book, website, whatever, ask these three questions. How much does the author talk about first repenting for my sin of indulgence and greed when it comes to food? Was the latest fad diet or even good, just typical pyramid stuff, like whatever that thing's called? You should eat this many grain. What is spoken of in there? about dealing with the sin of indulgence and greed when it comes to food? 
Or another question, how much does the author talk about caring for my body because it reflects God's holiness? Now maybe a third question. How much does the author talk about dealing with my sin of idolatry and confessing that before the Lord? Now I'm not saying that the whole thing can't move on to other things. I'm saying this is foundational. And do they present that as such? Now, now listen, I'm not saying, and I'm, I'm going to try not to over-caveat this, I'm not saying that we can't learn things from people who don't talk about this. But, we need to think about, let me, let me give you another thought. If your overweightedness, however you want to say it, isn't caused by some brokenness of your body, it's likely caused by brokenness of your flesh. Likely, keyword. It's likely caused by something sinful. But the problem here, this, here's the problem. You're reading these books, blogs, whatever. The problem, though, is we're learning how to fix a sin problem in our lives apart from a gospel solution. We're learning how to ignore the fact that we have disgraced God's holy name with the way we treat our bodies. And we are, in, instead of embracing that and dealing with that rightly, what we do is we just try to be better people. We just try to eat better food. We just try to do what's right and lose weight and... What are we learning? We're learning again to fix a sin problem, likely, apart from a gospel solution. Why? Why, why is this happening? Because, listen, the, the authors that we're reading don't understand the holiness of God. Or they do, and they just simply don't care. You're being taught the wrong holiness. It's a, it's a holiness apart from God. For most diet authors, the definition of holiness is looking good and feeling good. As long as you look good, feel good, you must be holy. That that is the greatest good. That is what is championed and what is looked upon highly and desired. That I would look good and feel good. Listen, that's all secondary. If it matters at all. It's living in a way that honors God when it comes to our body. My point is not to just pick on these. I just happened to think of an example that hit a bunch of people. That you're being taught a definition of holiness. Now, certainly, you can go read a diet book and, 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 and take some good tips from that. But you have to first deal with this, or you're just going to cycle through diets every six months. Listen, when you're listening to a sermon, whoever's it is, you're being taught a definition of holiness. Certain things are being propped up as good and certain things are being propped down as bad. When you read any scripture, you're being taught God's definition of holiness. So we have to understand that everywhere we turn, everything we look to, parents, everything you communicate to your kids, you are, you are either explicitly or implicitly stating and teaching them what is holiness. You see, 
the world disregards God's expectation of holiness, and it's on display in the way they indulge in sin and ignore the impending consequences that are either upon that sin currently or will be upon that sin in the future. And you see, we show often a fundamental misunderstanding of God's holiness when we indulge in sin and convince ourselves here. This is where it's dangerous for us. And we convince ourselves that it's covered by grace. We indulge in sin and functionally we do that and we do that with lightheartedness concerning the holiness of God. Because we'll sit back and we'll claim I can be forgiven tomorrow when I ask for forgiveness. But we just learned, though, that someone who indulges and makes a practice of sinning, what does Paul say? There is no grace for you. There is no grace for you. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying there's no grace for you. Someone who makes a practice of sinning. So we have to be careful that we're not like, finding ourselves in that camp. And that's part of what Paul is talking about here today. The first thing that you need to know, particularly from this text, is that a child of God cannot be indifferent toward immorality. That a child of God cannot be indifferent toward morality. Now listen, this has certainly been implied. It's been implied. Now it's much more explicit in this verse. He says, "...let no one deceive you with empty words." For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. <clears throat> so kind of a, a first sub-point for you. Do, do not be deceived with empty words. Don't be deceived with empty words. So here's the question. Right? Who's trying to give them empty words? That's a good logical question to ask. Who is trying to lead them astray? It's not really indicated clearly, but I think it's probably the unbelieving Gentiles in their midst. Nevertheless, the, the point is, is don't be deceived with empty words. These are maybe likely people in the workplaces of their day. For us, it would be similar. People in the workplaces, people on TV. I was watching Madam Secretary uh, last week, the, the finale. And in that, the, does anyone here, if anyone's here, I'm going to ruin the finale for you, okay? All right, here it goes. So the oldest daughter is about to, to base, not elope, but get married very, very, very quickly. And mom and dad are, you know, the secretary and, and her husband are upset about this is moving too quick and they're kind of having this exchange in the in the bedroom and they're 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 kind of uh, upset that she's gonna get married too quick and these were the words said I mean don't they don't they like don't they need to like live together first I mean isn't that what's supposed to happen and then the conversation goes on what's being communicated in that moment right I mean this is obvious we know that that's not right What's being communicated is the standard of holiness. 
that in her mind, or in the, the writer's mind at this point, that what is acceptable, what is most holy, is being prepared for marriage via living together. It's not just that that's okay, it's actually being presented in this moment that that's what's good and holy and right. Shouldn't this happen? Why? What's going on? They're, they have no comprehension of some impending judgment that is to come. So we should not be misled by anyone who encourages sexual permissiveness, particularly in this context. Certainly, we do not want to be misled by anything that is unholy, but particularly in this passage is the idea of sexual permissiveness and promiscuity. Like, basically, here's what's happening. They're thinking about these activities as a matter, like, of indifference. You know, we're just going to go have fun. There's nothing to come. And what Paul is saying is that these arguments, these arguments to, to live life this way because there is no judgment to come, he is saying that those are empty. That those words are empty. And, and here's what he means. What, what do you think he means by empty? That they're void of truth. That they're false. That false words are empty. Why? Because they have no truth. And they have no truth. Why? Because they do not concede the reality of God's holy judgment on sin. He is warning his readers, Paul is warning us, against those who called themselves potentially Christians or these Gentiles who were not Christians, but laughed at the idea of that sexual immorality and greed and maybe a little fun would fall under God's judgment. Like we see that in the world and the, re, the way we started today is I wanted to see, I want you to see how that creeps in to our lives. I was watching a Q&A session, um, I think it was at the Ligonier Conference, but nevertheless, R.C. Sproul was on stage, and, and the question was posed, and there was multiple people, but R.C. Sproul was the one answered, but here's the question. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? You might think, ah, that's a pretty good question, you know. Listen to R.C. Sproul's, and I wish I could say it just like him, but he says, time out. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe? This creature from the dirt defied everlasting, holy God. After that, God said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come about the one who had seduced him whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? 
I'm serious. I mean, that's what's wrong with Christians in the church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe if we have any understanding of our sin and understanding of who God is? That's the question, isn't it? You see, but we, I just want you to think this week, how much do you live life deceived by empty words that God's judgment, it's not going to come upon this filth that's in my life. How much do we laugh at the idea of immorality falling under God's judgment? Do we understand the holiness of God? I'll give you a couple verses here. Exodus 15, verse 11. The Song of Moses here. He says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, not just holy, but majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. For Samuel 2.2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. What does he mean? I mean? Think about this. He's saying God is alone in His holiness. There is none like Him. So the question is, in what ways do we not reckon with God's holy judgment on sin? In what ways have we been deceived with empty words? I have some kind of diagnostic questions for you to think through here. How easy is it? So if you want to get a gauge maybe for are you being deceived with empty words and not reckoning that God's judgment will come upon sin, how easy is it for you to continue in sin? Like how easy is it for you to push it aside for another day, for another time. Maybe another way to ask that same question is how much effort do you put in to dealing with sin? Second kind of question, how easy is it for you to forsake knowing what rightly reflects His holiness? How easy is it for you to forsake seeking the knowing of this? Listen, if you have a concern for the holiness of God, you'll read His Word. You cannot claim that you have a concern for the holiness of God and not spend time searching the Scriptures to discover what He said is holy. So if you don't read your Bible, you do not care about the holiness of God. Another question, do you weep for forgiveness? Do you weep for forgiveness? I don't, I don't mean like literally cry, but do you, is there a weightiness? Is there a weightiness to seeking forgiveness from the Father? Is there a weightiness to that? I'm getting in with one of my children where we're, we're going to the bedroom to talk about a punishment. And of course, the lawyer's talking, the, whole, the defense attorney's all the way to the room already. 
And then we get down, and we're getting ready to talk, and, and, and like, before I can even get a word out of my mouth, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry. That's, that's, there's not a, a weightiness to the forgiveness. Like there's, there's this, I think sorry can get me out of my punishment. But do we understand what we're doing when we ask for forgiveness? Or to pick up on something we talked about a little earlier in this, in this book, how hot does your anger burn at sin as it wrongly represents God? And I would say particularly in your own life. Now listen, I made some very bold statements in there. I'm not going to spend time caveating those. You guys should know my heart by now. I want to move on. You see, God's wrath is upon those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Okay? Those who do not know God and those who do not know, do not obey the gospel. Right, so we're going to flesh some of this out here. Because you're going, because I know some of us are going, oh, but I'm in Jesus. And, okay. He says that His wrath has come upon particularly who there? The sons of disobedience. Okay? The sons of disobedience. Now the question is, is, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon us. What are these things? These things are what he just talked about in the verse before. Certainly not limited to that. We would not limit expressions of unholiness to simple, simply sexual immorality. So it would certainly have application beyond that. But very particular in this context, we we're talking about sexual immorality, fornication, homosexuality adultery. And that list keeps going on, right? Any illegitimate sexual experience. That's what he's talking about. That, that God's wrath has come upon the sons of disobedient because of these things. Now he is not pointing, listen, to those who commit occasional acts of disobedience but to those whose lives are characterized by this disobedience. Now, now here's, the, here's the deal. I, I know some of us just kind of did a gut check there real quick. And we, we wanted to tag our disobedience as an occasional act of disobedience. Now, if, if you're doing that, then that's probably not a good sign. You're probably trying to justify what's going on in your own heart and your own life. What should be the right response in that moment, if you're thinking, is it occasional, is it not occasional, is not, it's not a matter of frequency. What, what should happen in our hearts is we should plead the gospel. I, but God, I trust you, and I, I want to follow you, and I believe your son Jesus died for me. But here's the point. He's not pointing to those who commit this kind of occasional act. He's talking about those who are characterized by disobedience. The problem is that if we're not careful, that's why Paul's doing this, is if we're not careful, we can, be, we can wake up one day and realize that we're in the category of those people who make a practice of disobedience. 
You know, come, I'm going to circle back around to that warning a, a little bit later. But listen to this. Two things here. Two, last two kind of subpoints. God's wrath, he says, has come upon the disobedient. It's come. So the powerful reason, listen to this, for not being deceived. So we need to listen here. The powerful reason for not being deceived is on account of these things, the sin, the sexual immorality. I mean, and you need to read any immorality. That God's holy and righteous anger against sin has come upon the disobedient. Has come. Notice here that the tense of this phrase is in the present. He said it comes. Meaning there's a present, like I, I think ultimately what he's indicating here is kind of this process of wrath. Where there's this wrath that's come now and this wrath that will come in the future. But he's saying, for, think about right now, for those, those who are in disobedience now. That they're experiencing some level of divine wrath now. It's just, think back to what we talked about before, last week, I think it was last week, that there's a future and a present tense to the aspects of inheritance. And those, and trying to think through those who are, uh, who are going to inherit the kingdom of God and who will not. There's a present and future aspect to that. Well, there's a present and future aspect to the aspects to the wrath of God as well. The question is, how does he show wrath in the present? Just a couple examples. I mean, think about the mental and emotional anguish that comes from sexual promiscuity. I think, I think here's the deal. I think we look around at people without God, and we, I, I think we are fooled to think that they are satisfied and happy. I just... I just my, myself included, like I look, and why am I not grieved as Jesus was as he looks upon the crowd with compassion and says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And they're being led to the slaughter. We think they're happy. I think it's because we just either forget or we do not know the depths of true happiness. And so we look and we compare that to our lives and we go, it's not too much different. But think about the mental and emotional anguish that comes from sexual problems. You see, why do you think they continue to return to the well for more? The slaves to their desires. The despair, the guilt, the shame. I think we ought to understand that it's there it's just being suppressed. The truth is there. The guilt is there. The shame is there. It's just being suppressed. I mean, how about, how about this? Think about the physical consequences that come from sexual sin. Not everywhere, not every time, but certainly comes. So God's wrath has come upon the disobedient. There's a level at which God's wrath has come. It's there. But there's also a sense in which God's wrath will come upon the disobedient. At the second coming of Christ, the judgment of the whole universe will come. 
And, and I, I think, again, we don't understand what this means. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-9, let me read this to you. This is what Paul says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming, look, look at the picture, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. There is coming a day when God will inflict vengeance on those who do not know Him and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Like, do we believe that when we're conversing with the cashier or we're talking with our neighbor or we're sitting with our children or we're talking to our spouse or when we're trying to justify our sin and not receive encouragement and exhortation? Do we really believe that God, that this is His righteous judgment And that these people, or maybe myself, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. There's coming a day when God will inflict vengeance on those who do not know Him and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our our world has convinced us that love wins. Right? Right? Love already won. It won in Jesus. More of that to come. Vengeance has a part in there too. God's judgment, that God's righteous judgment on sin is good too. But you know, like Rob Bell, we begin to think in some sort of practical universalism. Oh, God's good, and He's going to do what's good, and He's going to, you know, He's going to reach those people. And, and if we're not careful as, as Reformed people, we can really easily get into that category as well. Well, if, if they're elect, God's going to save them. Listen, yeah, but He might be through you. In a non-ultimate way, their salvation might be dependent on you. What I mean by that is, how shall they know if they've not heard, and how shall they not hear if, if they've not been, someone has told them, and how shall they not hear if someone has not been sent? And Listen, if you have a neighbor, you've been sent. You have the gospel. You don't need to pray about that one. 
I, last night at 1 o'clock in the morning, was God, this is totally God, I don't want to take any credit for this, went to Meyer for a random issue, another story, another day, and uh, I ran into my neighbors. I'm like, oh, like my next door neighbors. At 1 o'clock in the morning at Meyer. And I'm like, all right, God, what's your plan with this one? And so I talked to the one, and then I'm walking down the highway, and then there's the other one, and not, this is not different neighbors, same house, couple. And, and, uh, and we ended up having this, I mean, it wasn't like glorious, like I left like overjoyed, but it was glorious in the sense that it was gospel conversation at one o'clock at Meyer. Do we believe, like, that God's judgment is coming? Do we believe that? Paul warns us, he says, a child of God cannot partner with the unrighteous. He says they cannot partner with the unrighteous. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. I want to give just a brief comment here about something that's being implied. I want to give a brief comment about some kind of, uh, about sanctification. Why do you think Paul writes these letters? Why do you think Paul writes these letters? I, I think, here's the thing, I think the misperception that many of us have is if I just kind of show up at church, if I kind of crack open my Bible every once in a while, if I just let the light of Jesus shine in, you know, I, I'm going to be changed. If that's the case, why is Paul giving so many things for us to do? For us to live, for ways for us to look at life, and ways for us to behave, to obey. You see, the New Testament method of sanctification and of holiness is this. See the truth. Believe the truth. And then live the truth. See the truth. Understand it. Right? Believe it. That means worship it. Know it. Like, deep down and then live it. What did Jesus say? The truth shall make you free. And then he says, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples. Interesting that we often forget the second part of that verse. Know the truth, which implied in that is believing it, and then living the truth. The implication of Paul's writing here is that we have a responsibility to know, believe, and live. We must understand God's commands here as graciousness to us. But that doesn't preclude work. That doesn't cut off our responsibility. And listen, I, I was in a conversation recently and the person says, well, we've got to do our part and then God will do His part. That's not what I'm talking about. It's all God's part. And then we have a role within His part. Does that make sense? It's kind of like the whole thing's His and then we have a responsibility inside of that, but it's him the one that ultimately is doing that as well. It's not his 50 and our 50. Okay? It's his 100 and whatever of ours. Listen to this. 1 John 3, 7-10. Little children, let no one deceive you. 
Sounds interesting, right? But this is a different apostle. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Do you hear that? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Praise God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Did you hear that? I mean, I look at sins that I'm struggling with, and I go, thank God, because that means I'm going to overcome it at some point. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So with this thought, with this thought in mind, Paul says this, children of God cannot have, should not have, wrongful contact, wrongful partnership with the ungodly. Paul is telling us not, now here's the deal, listen to this, because I've got to caveat this. Paul is not telling us to have no contact with the ungodly. If you did renovate us, I asked you to say, what is Paul saying and what is Paul not saying? Because he's not saying, do not have any contact with those who are ungodly. But this has been the gospel of many generations. The unspoken rule was, we stay away from those people. I'm here to be a question. How uneasy do you even get when they come into our church? This is not what Paul's saying. He's saying don't become partners with them. That's key. Partners with them. Partners is used to signify this. One who shares in a possession or a relationship. One who shares in a possession or a relationship. So the idea is one sharing in the disobedience of the immoral. Like you've become a partner. You're doing this. You're, let, me, let me say it another way. There are only two options when it comes to partnership. And they're mutually exclusive. Those who participate and are partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel and those who are partners with pagans in their sins. Whether participate in and are a part of the promise of God or we're part of the promise of pagans. Paul's point is this. Let me say it maybe a third way. We cannot have the worldview, the filter, and subsequent conduct of unbelievers. And we would not participate in that with them in a, some kind of ongoing or regular fashion. But instead, we must have a different filter when it comes to the way we view and interpret life. Otherwise, we will certainly partner with the unrighteous. That's what I was saying. That's why the Word of God, the power of the Spirit, and prayer is so important. 
Because this filter has to be changed and tweaked and shifted. Otherwise, we'll begin to interpret and view life or continue to interpret and view life the way the world does, and that will land us in partnership with their unrighteousness. That's Paul's warning here. Don't become partners with them. So how do we become partners with the ungodly? Maybe just a few examples here. When we do not condemn as disgusting and unholy the things that the world celebrates that dishonors God. We have to be careful that we're not becoming partners. Because here's the deal. When we do that, when we don't condemn it as such, at the very least in our heart and minds, when we become desensitized to it, we are opening the door wide for partnership with it. We become partners with them certainly when we enjoy the same sexual perversions they do. We be careful we don't become partners with them when we lack in protecting our families from these dark things. And if it's not obvious... We become partners with the ungodly when we do not value Jesus above all things. I mean, that's really kind of at the, the core here. Let me read to you a quote from Kent Hughes. He says this concerning this passage. and he says, does that sound like a bit much? Does that sound like hard? Does that sound like a bit like he's requiring so much of us? He says, this is because we are children of this age. But a godly life is possible. For we have His Spirit, who is just like Him. And, and ser- if you're looking back, you go, oh my gosh, like, oh my gosh, there's so much. You're thinking like a child of this age. And not like a child of the king who has all the resources in the world. Too often we think like the world and not like Christians. But think like a child of God, not like a child of this age. John 14, 16 says this, And I will ask the Father, this is Jesus, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Forever. Last and final thought is this. The motive of God's warning is His love for His children. The motive of God's warning is His love for His children. I wonder if when I tell my boys do not cross this line on the driveway because if you do you'll end up in the road. I wonder, okay, there's there's the warning, right? Do not do that. I wonder if they look at that and go, "Oh, man, you know what?" He must know what's on the other side of that line. 
and that whatever's on the other side of that line must be terrible for me. Must be terrible. I don't know what it is. I don't know all the details about it. I, you know, but I know that he knows and trusts that he knows that there's something really bad on the other side of that line. And what's good for me is on this side of the line to stay over here. Man, I feel so loved. I feel so, oh my goodness, like that's just, thank you, Father, for looking out for me, for caring for me, for being willing to show me what is good and what is not. And What do you think they think, right? I want to go on the other side of that line. There's something fun on the other side of that line. And my dad just doesn't want me to have it. Listen, what did he just say in verse 2? Like, what did he just say in verse 2? Four verses earlier. And walk in love. What? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's certainly commanding us to walk in love. But what is he saying? Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. For us, And it's in this context that he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. What's he saying? He's saying, My son died for the times that you crossed that line. He died. And so I'm telling you, that it's not good for you to cross that line. I love you. I loved you enough to pay for the price when you crossed that line. And I love you enough to tell you right now that it is not good for you across that line. You see, an aspect of God's love is that He is always gracious in warning us of the consequences of sin. But listen, what happens with us, though, when we see this, like when he says, do not partner with them, and do not be deceived by empty words, like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I know in me, like, some kind of tension wells up inside of me, and I go, oh, uh, but I want to, or, or but, but I'm fine, I don't need to be told that, I know. Instead of what should well up inside is just, thank you, God. I don't know what all that means over there, but I know that you do. And I know that you do what's good for me. And I should stay away. I should rest easy and peacefully in your arms. Because he loves me. He is, guys, he is warning. As a father would warn his children that those, that there's danger there. That there is danger. Brian Chappell points out something I think very special in this text. And I want to share it with you as well. The love of God is underscored in this passage when you look at the careful measurement of God's warning. Look at that with me. This verse so let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, wrath of God has come upon the sons of dis- disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. You need to notice this. And you need to go back and look at it this week. If you 
that, that you need. Listen, he never, the warnings never extend to rejection. The warning never extends to rejection. Notice, notice that Paul talks about the idolaters and the receivers of God's wrath, and he refers to them in what person? When you think about pronouns, what person? First, second, or third? Third. Them. Them. He's not saying you guys. He says them. The sons of disobedience. That the wrath of God has come upon them. Not you. Not you. He never says, if you end up there, God's going to reject you. And and I think the opposite. He says, if you figure out that you're there, it's because you never were a child. But he never extends it to rejection. Paul does not say, disinheritance and eternal wrath will come upon you. Instead, in His graciousness, He is warning us to stay away from this partnership. He's saying, don't go anywhere near it. Paul's assumption here is that God's people will indeed ultimately stay away from this partnership. I was thinking about kind of two different people here. If you are partnering with evil and persist in this partnership, then you have no partnership in the redemption of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, if you are born again, a redeemed child of God, the list of names under the wrath of God shall never include yours. Even though we surely have sin in our lives, the apostle does not say, you are one of them. You're one of God's children. Like, did, you, did you hear that? Paul never says that God's people are one of them. And this is all I could write in my notes. It's, oh, the days it seems that sin has overtaken my heart. The Lord's keeping power says, you are not one of them. Not in a self-righteous way. Not in a, I'm better than them. But in a despair. God's keeping power says you're not one of them. So, an aspect of God's love is always His grace in warning us of the consequences of sin. And last thought here, Paul is sparing believers of the greatest consequence of sin, which is being identified by it. Paul is sparing believers the greatest consequence of sin, 
which is being identified by it. Listen, the greatest consequence of sin is not the trials that often follow the sin, but the wrath of God that comes to those identified by it. See in this passage that we are never identified with the idolatry. We're never identified with the sexual immorality. We're never identified with any of that which brings upon itself the wrath of God. He doesn't ever make us a part of those people or refer to us as a part of those people. Now listen, we re- 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That is our identity. Throughout all these warnings, God's children remain in Jesus and He in them. Now remember, remember we talked about thankfulness? Remember we talked about thankfulness last week for redemption? This knowledge... That through all of this, those who are children will always be children. That those who are children will overcome. Guys, knowledge of these things fill us with thanksgiving and push out of our lives the immorality and sinfulness that overtakes us often. Knowing these things, resting in these things, being thankful. We are never named among them. Dr. Chapel said, or Brian Chapel says, one other thing. He says, uh, Paul seeks to overwhelm us with the savor of our identity, the blessings of purity, and the warnings of grace. We are to imitate God because we are his children. Nothing else will do anymore. Nothing else will satisfy. Paul tells us that as an odor of a sweet savor to God, we should be what we are. We are His children. And we are His saints. And so we should live that way. Amen? I want to ask our people serving communion to come forward and you can go ahead and do this now and I'll pray for us. And, um, yeah, I just pray that you guys would take some time during this time of communion to think about, let me give you some specific direction. Unless there's something really pressing on your heart, think about Aspects of redemption and your thankfulness for it. Let me give you that direction for our time. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see your warnings as graciousness to us. Father, that we would that we would feel loved. And that any tension in us when hearing your warnings that we would recognize them as what they are and that is 
thoughts and fruit of distrust of our Father. That we think that somehow you are out to harm us, that you're out to keep us from something good. And Father, let us dispel that, let us repent of that. Father, for if we are your child, it has been nailed to the cross. So Father, I pray that we would see that your wrath is coming upon those who do not know you and do not trust you and do not obey your gospel. And Father, your warning here is so that we may never wake up realizing and seeing that we were never a child and indeed have always been sons of disobedience. That's your warning for us. Let us see it as your kindness to us. Let us see that this is what is good for us. But, Father, give us a heart that doesn't just want to do what's good for us, but, Father, a a heart that wants to do what is most glorious for you. That we would want to please our Father. That we would want to respond, respond to your kindness with faithfulness. Father, have mercy on us. Father, forgive us when we fail. Father, remind us. Remind us that our sin has been nailed to the cross. Remind us when we fail that your love never fails us. Thank you for being our Father. 